With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, we're back, uh, both in the same continent. Welcome in, episode number 34 of the show. Before the show, the Minor League Baseball Podcast. I'm Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra's in New York City. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tyler. Welcome back to uh, Thanks, America dude. and Thanks. North America and all that kind of stuff. How, how are you feeling? How are things going now that you're back in, uh, back from Asia? I am so confused. I when I got there, I I flew in at like a very good time. I landed at like six p.m. in Taipei or something like that. So you can stay up like a few hours, then go to sleep. It's like a normal night's sleep, and then you're off and started for the next day, and you get adjusted pretty quickly that way. Yesterday, I landed in San Francisco at like eight thirty in the morning, um, then flew to Denver. I got here at like one o'clock in the afternoon, and then I laid down to take an hour nap, and I was gonna uh, wake up and. And record an interview with you yesterday and I woke up three hours later and missed the interview which is a fantastic interview by the way that we'll have with Sean Newcomb coming up later on um, but that'll be Sam solo because Sam handled that and knocked it out of the park and so then you know like last night relatively normal night of sleep but I have like no idea where I am what day it is what time it is I'm so confused well I, I hope you're at home and I hope yeah, there's tons of so. clocks at least and you know <laughs> modern technology keeping you up to date with where so, you are in the world ask Siri so a lot that's all all of it. All of it's so confusing. But hey, welcome in. It's the 34th edition of the show. Like I said, I'm Tyler. He's Sam. And let's dive right in. It's been a uh, it's been a busy couple of weeks around the world of minor league baseball. We are nearing the final days of the Arizona Fall League Championship game coming up on Saturday. We are recording this on Thursday. You will have it on Friday. Uh, but we've had some big moves over the last handful of days, last couple of weeks. Um, trades, some uh, already some late moves just over the last couple of days uh, at the big league level. Uh, but the big one is where we're going to start for strike one in episode number 34 and that is this massive trade that went down uh, just a handful of days ago just about a week ago now between the San Diego Padres and the Boston Red Sox the Padres who this time last year were the team shocking everybody by dealing away prospect after prospect after prospect for major league talent after major league talent which did not work out for San Diego now they're flipping things on the other side and they have traded Craig Kimbrell, maybe the best closer in all of baseball to the Boston Red Sox. This was last Friday for four of Boston's top 30 prospects. Manuel Margot, Javier Guerra, Carlos Suave, and Logan Allen. Man, this is a haul for San Diego. I saw a lot of early returns, Sam, on this trade from people who said the Padres got a better prospect haul in return than what they gave up to get Kimbrell in the first place. You're a guy who's very keyed in, obviously, with the Red Sox organization, and, and you wrote up this deal uh, just kind of walking us through. You've written up a lot of prospects in this trade. How does this stack up as of right now? And furthermore, we don't talk about things from the, the, the major league prospect or the major league standpoint of trades, but does dealing this group of guys for one major league closer feel like a smart move on the Red Sox side for a team that wasn't really in contention last year? Yeah, so the way I kind of viewed this when it first happened was this is kind of the first major move of the Dave Dombrowski era in Boston. And, right. You know, everything, all the previews, everything you had heard about him coming in was this is a guy 
who is more than willing to deal prospects to get established major league talent. And and Kimbrell certainly, if he's not the, if you don't consider him the game's best closer, you consider him in the top three, top five, definitely. And what we saw, you know, the past couple of years with Kansas City and uh, you know, it, it, and with the Mets too, with uh, Mejia. Um, you know, it, it helps so much to have just that really, really solid end of the game closer. And what the Red Sox now have potentially is, you know, Chinichi Tazawa in the seventh, uh, Koji Uehara in the eighth, and Ke- Craig Kimbrell in the ninth, ass- assuming everybody's healthy. And that's, I mean, that's a, as solid a, a back end of the bullpen as you could possibly get. Um, so I think everybody's trying to, you know, we've heard with Chapman being on the market. Um, there's rumors now about Andrew Miller potentially being moved. Maybe the Yankees are trying to tap into everybody looking for relief. Um, everybody's calling Darren O'Day now because they, they really want that solid bullpen arm. Um, this is kind of, kind of becoming an off season of, you know, what can you get out of the bullpen? What can you possibly, how many people can you possibly pack in there? Um, so with that in mind, um, you know, with Dombrowski's kind of, the the way he handles himself as a GM, you know, now he's president of baseball operations with the Red Sox. But uh, the way he kind of handles himself, um, even with that in mind, kind of looking at this, this, this deal was one prospect too heavy uh, in my mind in terms of what the Red Sox sent uh, to San Diego. Uh, if it was Margot, Aswahe, and Allen, I, I think that's an even trade. That's, you know, perfectly fine. Kimbrell, you know, has... Um, I think he's under contract for at least one more year and then has an option year. Um, so he's controllable. You know, he's he's not cheap as far as relief pitching goes, but he's certainly worth his contract. So if it was just those three, I'd be okay. If it was just Guerra, Suahe, and Allen, I'd be okay. The fact that Margot and Guerra, who are t- two top 100 guys, two guys who are very valued for their defense, which we know the, the way the game is going right now, everybody values defense very highly. Um, that it just feels a little bit much for a guy you're going to get 67, 60 to 70 innings out of, you know, potentially next year, year after that. Um, but that that being said, San Diego should be happy with what they they got. I mean, they you know they found somebody in Margot and Guerra who, you know, they were kind of as good prospects as they are. They they were certainly blocked in the in the Red Sox system. Margot is a center fielder. Um, certainly isn't going to supplant Mookie Betts anytime soon. He's one of the most exciting young players in baseball, and showed that this year. Uh, Guerra is a shortstop, and Alexander Bogarts, you know, showed this year. I think he was a Silver Slugger winner for the American League shortstops. He's young, controllable. Um, his defense took a huge step this year. Guerra, you know, played at Class A Greenville, um, performed much better offensively than many of us thought hit 15 homers 279 average uh 23 doubles so showed a little more pop than any of us were expecting has a very very plus glove uh lots of range over there at the shortstop position um so i think the the padres you know if they were looking to boost their farm system um in a way that they did not do last year after they depleted it a little bit uh this was certainly the move to make and i think they found a, a certainly willing partner in dave dombrowski that's kind of the crazy thing is you look at the way that that farm system was gutted last year. Uh, and Randy Jaslieri had a fantastic piece uh, for Grantland this summer about how the Padres went from a team with a pretty solid farm system that looked like it was going to force them into contention over the next couple of seasons to just 
trading all of that away in pursuit of a ton of proven major league talent didn't work out at all. Um, and obviously that turned into a, a, an experiment that really fell by the wayside in, in San Diego. But I think one of the most interesting storylines to come out of this is A.J. Preller. At one time, it looked like a guy who kind of abandoned all the things that had gotten him to where he was. I mean, he was a, a great guy on the international markets, really was good at developing amateur talent when he was in Texas, and instead goes to San Diego, gives up on basically all of that, and just tries to acquire major league talent. Now, it looks like if I'm a Padres fan, I'm thinking, well, maybe he's as good in the flip side of those deals as he was last year in acquiring all of that major league talent. Because if the first move of this offseason of now rebuilding again in San Diego is to go out and get four top 30 prospects from a very, very good system, I feel pretty good about that if I'm a Padres fan. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, you have to at least like his negotiation <laughs> tactics. Yeah. You could squeeze these four guys out of, the, you know, like I said, it, I, I – it would have been a backbreaker to throw in Guerra on top of Margot or Margot on top of Guerra. Um, but somehow Preller talked Dombrowski into it, or maybe Dombrowski brought it up himself, and Preller instantly said yes, as he should. I mean, we don't know exactly how the deal went down, but the fact that at the end of the, the trade they could announce these four guys um, was huge. And I remember when the news was kind of breaking, there were some rumors that some other major league talent was going to be involved. I know the Red Sox are looking for starting pitching help and Tyson Ross would be a nice return. Um, so when, when I heard those four prospects, I thought there's got to be something else coming. Um, but the fact that it was Jess Kimbrell certainly adds points to Preller's negotiation tactics. But um, like I've said, you know, Dave Dombrowski knows, kind of knows what he's doing. He the trade everybody likes to go back to was the Miggy Cabrera trade he made back when he was working with the Tigers. I mean, I'll just list you off the the prospects who went the other way to Florida, Miami. Um, in that deal was Dallas Trahern, Burke Badenhop, Frankie De La Cruz, Cameron Maben, Andrew Miller, and Mike Ribello. And none of those really turned out well for Miami. Um, nobody was certainly a barn burner. Nobody you would point to it and say, well, maybe Miami won the trade. Detroit firmly won that trade. So maybe, you know, we'll check in in two years. Maybe Margot's bat doesn't quite work out. Maybe Guerra, you know, it, his offense does take a turn and he is just a glove only guy once he hits the upper levels. We'll see how that goes. But, uh, yeah, just as things stand right now, and that's the only way we can evaluate it, I, I would give the advantage to Preller. Let's move on to something that you alluded to, Sam, there for strike two in this uh, 34th episode of the show before the show. One of the main schools of thought that went into this deal was the fact that Margot and Guerra were both able to be traded because they were, quote unquote, blocked coming up in that Boston system. Now, that happens to a lot of guys in a lot of different systems. Who are some of the guys that kind of stand out to you as potentially in that same boat that they're not going to be able to make a climb all the way to the big leagues with the current organization so they then become currency for a potential? deal yeah so uh instantly when you think about this you immediately go to the cubs infield situation uh you know they've got addison russell who played a really really good shortstop started out the year uh with the cubs as a second baseman they decided to move him short move starlin castro who's another controllable young you know good hitting in middle infielder so that's kind of in flux we know bryant's at third um but you know is are they going to move him to the outfield they tried a little bit of that uh, and then there's Javier Baez, who, as we know, is a free swinger, but lots and lots of power, lots of potential there. Was, I think, as high as a top 10, top 5 prospect when he still had eligibility. Out of that group, the most likely to be moved, my guess would be, would be Javier Baez. Uh, you know, spent m- most of the year at AAA Iowa last year. 
Um, and again, showed off a lot of that pop. I think it did a little bit better with the strikeout numbers. Certainly looks major league ready. Should not be on the fringes of a roster. Um, I think he's a guy. He's no, like I said, no longer a prospect, but I think he's certainly currency at this point. And I'd, I'd be interested to see how other organizations view him and that he is excess, so he means less to the Cubs. Ergo, they're going to ask for other things other than Baez in a trade, or if they they're going to value him as highly as he should be alone, separate, you know, in a vacuum. And if he, you know, it's a one for one trade or something like that for another controllable, maybe starting pitcher, um, something like that that the Cubs are looking for. Um, outside of him, you know, he's the one that sticks out. I, I don't, I'm not going to predict that this trade is going to happen, but I think he's somebody who is certainly blocked. Um, with the major league situation the way it is right now is Austin Meadows and the Pirates organization. Uh, when you talk about the Pirates, you talk about that outfield with Andrew McCutcheon and Starling Marte and Gregory Polanco, and those are just three. You know, they would start on almost any team in the in the majors individually if they were to, to be sent to another team. So that might be the best outfield in baseball right now. Meadows got to, you know, the double uh, A Altoona at the end of the year spent most of it in the FSL still a couple steps away but if you're looking at somebody who's blocked you know the Pirates were right on the cusp of being you know they were one of the best teams in baseball last year right on the cusp of a division title had to play in the wild card game but uh, you know if they're looking to make a deal maybe Austin Meadows is somebody they think you know he's highly rated by other organizations it's going to be a while before he, he'd be able to be used for us um, those are guy, kind of guys to take out and to stay in the Red Sox organization itself, um, I think Brian Johnson, Henry Owens, you know, two young left-handers. Uh, Johnson's still a prospect. Owens got to show a little bit in major in the majors last year. Uh, you know, the Red Sox, the r- rotation is obviously a big point of need for them, and everybody's talked about that um, in terms of improvement. And I think one, if they do add a big arm, say Johnny Cueto or David Price, that, that pushes Johnson and Owens down the pecking order. And if they look to make a trade for another arm, those guys are certainly guys who could go because I think at, as it stands, they're number four or number five guys. And uh, if the Red Sox are really looking to improve their rotation, I think they would be on the fringes and probably not ready to go again to AAA. That uh, I, I mean, I think, you know, like you said, it sort of begins with the Cubs. And I think it's somewhat surprising to a lot of us that the Cubs have not made a deal with any of that talent because – as really as early as, I mean, about the middle of last season, especially around the, the trade deadline of last season, of 2014, not 2015, you started looking at all the position player talent the Cubs had and thinking, what are they going to do with all this? At some point, they got to acquire some pitching. Somehow they have to make a move. And that hasn't happened, at least to the extent that you thought it would. Obviously, I mean, you pick up Jake Arrieta and then he goes out and wins a Cy Young for you. I don't think anybody expected that to happen. So the Cubs certainly had that luxury. They were, you know, a handful of wins away from a World Series this year. Um, they have so much of that talent still there that if they choose to make a deal, um, that is an option for them. Uh, one of the teams that I think falls somewhat into a similar line but in a different style is the New York Mets. Starting pitching, they're so loaded now at the major league level, and that's a lot more difficult than saying, you know, you're already, you've already got a couple guys at the shortstop position. You don't need these guys below them because one of them's going to pan out, whatever. You can never have enough starting pitching. But I think the Mets have the luxury with what they have at the major league level now 
to look at some of the maybe mid-level top 30 prospects that they have, guys like Gabrielli Noah, who is fantastic this year, really, really good command guy, pitched for Double A Binghamton. There are a handful of guys who they have the option on now of looking maybe at what it means going forward. Do they need all of that depth in the minor league ranks if they have so many talented pitchers at the major league level who they have under team control for a while? Robert Gesellman is another one uh, who is at Double A Binghamton this year, so that's a team that I would keep an eye on too. Like I said, not the same thing is position player talent but another one at least to, to have your eye on going forward um and finally sam like i said we're two days away now from the end of the arizona fall league season we've seen a lot of breakout performances from guys there um this has been a fun afl to watch because there have been uh just so many different good performances league-wide it's not like you've just looked at a couple of rosters that were loaded there have been a lot of really really good showings this afl season what has stood out to you from the afl so far yeah, well, as far as the fall league goes, um, you know, one thing that I think has really stuck out to me has been kind of the ascension of Gary Sanchez. Uh, you know, he it's kind of the death and the, the birth of Gary Sanchez all over again. Um, certainly had a good year this year between Trenton and uh, AAA, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre. Um, and, and I think he had kind of become a, a guy who, you know, he'd been the Yankees' top prospect for so long and just hadn't quite panned out, you know, played a couple years in a row this was his third year this year in a row and at double a trenton people kind of forgot that he you know he's only 22 he's turning 23 this year on december 2nd so still plenty young um but when you're the top prospect for that long everybody expects you to shoot up immediately to the majors and be a quick riser and that hasn't been the case with him uh but like i said this year you know he had an 815 ops 18 homers um, which I think tied a career high for him. So he was showing the power during the regular season, comes to the fall league, and just starts destroying all over again. Uh, as of Thursday, this is the last day of the fall league as we're talking right now. He leads with seven homers. Nobody else had more than five. Uh, he had a 986 OPS, 632 slugging percentage, uh, led the league with 20 RBIs, you know, it, if his average was a little higher, he hit 299, which is certainly good for Gary Sanchez. He's never going to be a, you know, more than a high 200 hitter. Uh, he'd be in the discussion for triple crown for the AFL, you know, leader in homers and RBIs the way things stand. So I think he really solidified himself as somebody who the Yankees uh, can trust going into 2016. And we kind of saw midway through the AFL season, you know, when they traded uh, John Ryan Murphy, their backup catcher for Aaron Hicks with the Twins, um, I think that's a sign that they do think Sanchez is going to be, you know, they're going to kind of ease him in. They're going to have him behind Brian McCann, probably start out at AAA, let him get those at-bats. But when he starts to destroy again and show what he showed in the fall league in AAA, uh, you know, he'll be right in there. And I think they're finally planning for Gary Sanchez at the major league level. One other guy who kind of stood out to me, I did a notebook on him, um, Adam Engel in the White Sox organization. Definitely. Uh, he's going to end up being the AFL batting champ. Uh, right now he's batting 403, has a 1.165 OPS. This was a guy, we talked about him on the podcast before, but you know he's a, he's a glove first guy, just got wheels for days, ends up with 10 steals in 19 games for Glendale. Uh, you know, the one question was in his bat, hadn't really hit anything that, or that well at Class A advanced Winston-Salem this year. Um, you know, when I talked to him about it, he said, you know, listen, I know that everybody questions my hit tool and that's something I need to work on. And if I think, or he thinks if he, and I, I know a lot of people would probably agree with him. If he could actually hit for a decent average, get on base at a decent clip, he would be 
one of the more whole five-tool prospects. Uh, but like I said, he hit 251 this year at Winston-Salem. So there are a lot of questions now. Now he comes to the fall league, hits really well. It's obviously a small sample, 19 games. Anybody can kind of get hot in that span. Uh, but it's certainly good signs from him. And I remember when I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, he said, even if I finish strong, I'm not going to let it get to my head. You know, I have to do it in, in the season. So I, I'd be interested to hear what he has to say now. Um, you know, now that he has done that, he has followed through, has had one of the better fall league seasons, whether that's going to change his outlook going into spring training next year and potentially at double A Birmingham in the uh, White Sox system. But what about for you, Tyler, uh, looking upon this AFL season, what are, what are the standouts? Adam Engel is definitely one of those guys for me, um, and I think you kind of said everything that needs to be said about him. But the fact that he recognized that the big question mark on him was, is his bat going to play at a high enough level to carry him through the minor leagues? And then he works on that. He gets better at it, and he goes down to a showcase league and really, really, I mean, just puts himself on the map. That's the most impressive thing to me. Um, one of the guys who I think has really showcased himself very, very well is Kyle Freeland with Salt River. Um, Rockies left-hander really struggled in his his first start of the season, two runs or two homers, rather six runs, got just two outs back on October 14th. After that was arguably the best pitcher in the AFL uh, today, picked up another win in Salt River's final game of the season. Uh, but since that first start coming into the day today, he had gone three and over the 0.92 ERA since getting started in the fall league. So that's a, a pretty impressive way to reassert yourself after a really rough beginning. But, um, you know, Gary Sanchez is another one and a guy who, for so long has been just on this roller coaster ride of prospect status. And the Yankees is something we've talked about from time to time is that teams that were at one time, these big, just huge money, free agent trade acquisition teams are starting to embrace the prospects conversation. And for Gary Sanchez, if he can be a guy that follows somebody like Greg Bird, some of the breakout prospects, the Yankees had this past season, that is a big benefit to New York going forward. And that's a team that was back in the playoffs this year. I mean, we've seen, lulls I guess you could say over the last few seasons from them and from the Red Sox and from some of these big money teams but as those prospects start to climb um, that ultimately only benefits those teams who still have the wallets to be able to go out and shore up the major league roster with depth from contracts and other positions so those guys definitely stand out uh, among all of them but um, we are going to uh, take a a brief pause and step out of the AFL and have a a conversation with a guy who has been on the radar for everybody around the baseball world as of late, Sean Newcomb of formerly the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, now in the system of the Atlanta Braves after the craziness that was the deal last week with Andrelton Simmons being shipped over to the West Coast. Initially, the reports were the Braves were in contact with a National League West team to get a trade done. Then it ends up being an American League West team, ends up netting the top two pitching prospects in the Angels organization for the Atlanta Braves. They have now moved over to that organization, which is now loaded, flush with young arms, something we talked about a lot last week but sean newcomb uh will give us his thoughts on the the trade in the next chapter in his life coming up next on episode number 34 of the show before the show our guest this week is uh newest braves top prospect sean newcomb sean how's it going yeah, how's it going? good good thanks for joining us i know it's i'm sure it's been a pretty busy week for you um, just describe what this last week has been like. You know, how did you hear about the trade? What was your initial reaction? What has this whole process been like for you? Uh, well, my first reaction, I was kind of shocked. I didn't really expect anything. I guess really nobody does. But um, 
Yeah, mostly just shock going and going and finding out. I was actually on vacation when I first found out. Um, I was in Cancun, Mexico, and I had I was only getting messages through Wi-Fi, so I had no Wi-Fi when that when it went through. And I sat down at dinner, Wi-Fi hooked up, and I got a bunch of text messages. And my Twitter started to blow up, and I was like, "Wow!" Like, I couldn't really like uh, <laughs> get a grasp on it. And talked to my agent, got the details, and figured it out. It was it was just a big kind of unexpected shock. Yeah, it's, I think it's, it's a good move though, and I'm excited to get things going down there in Atlanta and get down to spring training in Florida. Yeah, but but uh, so if you're in Cancun, was there any celebratory part to it? I mean, you're already on vacation. You know, what what is that like experiencing it there in that location? <laughs> no, we only had a couple of days left, and we were out to dinner. So we just I was with, I was there with my girlfriend, and we were I mean excited about it, kind of shocked, like I said, and I started texting my family and Chris uh, Ellis, who I was in the trade with. I was texting him about it, like what's going on. And, but yeah, I was definitely excited. Kind of celebrate a little bit, but yeah, it was, it was definitely good news. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Chris Ellis, obviously involved in the trade too. I mean, how much does that kind of help to have a buddy to go through that process with? A guy you know a little bit from Arkansas, you know, being in the Angel system together. You know, how much are you guys kind of leaning on each other, going through this? And like you said, you were texting back and forth. So, how, how much are you talking to him now? Yeah, we've been texting a little bit, just kind of trying to figure some little stuff out, like. So everything is going to be new. We're not even going to be in Arizona anymore for spring training. So yeah. it's just me and him back over in Florida. I know, actually, both know the same person, but another kid in the Braves organization to ask the questions to also. And, um, but yeah, I mean, that's definitely a big help having somebody who, you know, a familiar face to kind of go into this with. And we're pretty good friends. So it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. And, uh, you know, going into the Braves organization, you know, looking at the way they're kind of, filling up their farm system right now with just really, you know, high quality arms, a lot of, a lot of pitching, you know, how did you kind of view the brave system before this? And, you know, how do you view being part of this kind of not necessarily rebuild that they're going through, but that the way they're pumping their system uh, with talent right now? Yeah, I guess before the trade, I didn't really have much of a clue what was going on in the brave system. I didn't really know anybody in it. So I never really had a chance to check in on it, but um, I, Ever since I've been kind of looking and seeing what they've been doing, and I see all the arms that they've been bringing in and all that stuff, and um, I'm, it's definitely exciting. It's definitely an exciting thing to be a part of. I'm looking forward to hopefully being at the top of that list and kind of helping them with that rebuilding process, getting up and making a difference at the big league level, and moving forward from there and getting some wins and getting some championships. Hmm. And have they been in touch with you at all yet? I, I know it's still early, you know, it's only been a couple of days, but have they talked to you anything about your off season, about how to prepare for that first Atlanta spring training, or is it just kind of hands off right now, everybody introducing themselves? Uh, yeah, mostly just that, mostly just introductions, nothing specific. I had been doing pretty much what I would need to do, no matter what, you know, I was getting ready, getting my body ready and getting my arm ready, but just mostly introductions kind of just let me know how things are going to work and that's pretty much it so far. Yeah. And what, what has been part of those introductions? I mean, who have you talked to specifically so far or who has reached out to you? Uh, yeah, the night it happened, I talked with the, um, with the GM and he kind of just let me know what happened and that he was excited to get things rolling. And then um, I talked to Jonathan Charles and kind of got, got some information and got some stuff together for um, just a little go out and meet some people. 
prior to spring training, but um, and that's pretty much it, just those two, and then um, that's it. Yeah, and uh, you know, how do you kind of? I know you, you were saying before that it, you were going through shock when you first heard about it. Um, you know, I think a lot of people who aren't necessarily in baseball, you know, aren't necessarily in a trade and or you know in a job where they can be traded like that. How do you kind of view that process? Do you view it as somebody sending you elsewhere, or do you see it as somebody going out and trying to get you into their organization? Um, I guess I don't know. I guess you can kind of look at it both ways. Um, when I talked to Uncle Boella, he's told me specifically that he was looking to come out and get me. So I guess that's how I kind of proceeded it after I figured that out. But um, I mean, it's kind of an excitement from the beginning. A lot more first impressions to be made after I already had done that just one year prior with the Angels, but um, that's definitely an exciting, positive thing. Um, I think personally, I'm in a good good spot to uh, move forward and take my career forward another step, maybe a little bit faster than I would have been able to. So it's definitely going to be fun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you kind of touched on it there how you got off to a really good first step this year. Let's kind of reflect on your year. You know, you start out at Class A Burlington, move up to High A in the Cal League, do really well there for obviously what's a hitters league, and, and finish the year out at Double A and have some nice numbers there too. Um, now that you know the off season's happened a little bit, you've had a little time to sit back and look back on it. How did you kind of view your first full year in pro ball? Uh, overall, I was happy with it. I one of my main goals going into the season was to stay healthy and make sure I made every start and I was able to do that. Um, I got to each level and did what I had to do to keep moving. And then uh, I guess one one thing to look back on, kind of people would mention and some stuff I need to work on is just a little bit of my control and the walks and stuff. But that's the thing as a pitcher that I'll be able to easily just kind of lock in a little bit more and focus up and be able to cut those down and especially where I'll be in a spot to kind of my performance is going to dictate what happens. It would definitely kind of be a little bit more motivation to kind of buckle down on that and get things going. Yeah, and how do you kind of work on that? I know you said you buckle down, you you try to focus a little more, but do you think that was a problem before? You weren't so focused and that that's what led to the control? Or, what, what, you know, how do you kind of fix that and how did you kind of view, you know, what, like you said, some people thought were kind of some control issues with you this year? Um, I don't view it as a huge issue. I know some people would just because that's how how things are looked at. But I mean, I had a lot of competitive walks. I had I had some a lot of my walks were unfortunately just like to start off an inning out get the four pitch, five pitch walk and it was just kinda of frustrating. I maybe need to just lock in on those three on those warm ups and stuff a little bit. But I mean it wasn't like a huge issue. I was able to kinda of minimize when that, when they would happen and kinda of go forward and put up a lot of zeros but it wasn't like I said. It wasn't a huge deal. Something I'm not super worried about. Something I'll be able to easily kind of um, control, and I was able to control throughout the whole year, being able to minimize runs and get get guys out. Yeah, and and just to kind of go over your numbers for people listening who don't necessarily or weren't necessarily following you this year, maybe some new Braves fans. You know, you had 2.38 ERA across all three levels, 168 strikeouts in 136 innings. I mean, that's really solid numbers, stuff to build on, as we've kind of talked about. But how would you kind of describe yourself as a pitcher to Braves fans who are now, you know, you're in their organization for the first time. They're going to get their first time to see you in a Braves uniform, wherever that may be, you know, come opening day this April. 
Um, how would you kind of describe yourself as a pitcher to those those new sets of fans that's going to be following you? Um, I guess I'd say I like to work off my fastball. I'm competitive. Um, when I get into big games and big situations, I always buckle down. Sometimes, like when people get on base, whether it's hits or walks, I always tend to get out of those situations and minimize that. Um, definitely like to been able to kind of work on my off speed a lot this year and been able to kind of rein those those pitches in and become a huge part of my arsenal. And I've, learned, I've learned how to use them better than I did before, too, so that's been huge. Yeah, and kind of to go before, you know, this year happened, you know, you were a first-round pick out of out of Hartford, which obviously isn't a very huge baseball school. It produced Jeff Bagwell, who everybody knows about, guy on the Hall of Fame ballot this year. Um, but just kind of describe to people who don't know what uh, we we've talked about this before. I think this season, you know, what it's like to play in in northeastern ball when you know you, the winters are still snow on the ground. You're playing in gyms to practice that kind of thing. Um, but describe it to people who don't necessarily know what that's like to to grow up in Massachusetts, play college ball in Connecticut. Um, what was that you know baseball upbringing like for you and your your teens and into your college years? Uh, for me, baseball until college, baseball is always just one of the three sports. We changed football and basketball. Um, it was, it was definitely more of a focus. I would kind of I would play some fall ball during the football season, and I'd always just be be hitting and throwing throughout the winter. But um, I mean, we'd start later in high school. We'd start later and do the snow and have them wait for the field uh, to clear off from all the snow and stuff like that. But then, and same thing in, in college, had to wait for the snow to cool down to go down. And um, but yeah, I mean. Especially one big thing was about the innings. I was never able to get in a lot of innings because our seasons were cut a little short or whatever reasons. I was throwing in cold weather and they didn't want me to throw long long starts and this and that. But kind of going from college to my first full season this year, was that was the big thing was the innings. I had never had a chance to really build up my arms. So this is the first year I really got a large number of innings on my arm. Yeah, and, and kind of speaking to that, I mean, how much do you feel like you kind of have an advantage over other guys in that you don't have that many, you know, innings logged in your arm going back to high school, college, you know, in, in this age of kind of Tommy John where kids are pitching so much growing up, you know, you might have a slight advantage there given that there's not as much mileage on, on your arm as necessarily other people. Yeah, people look at that as kind of a positive or a negative. I mean, they can say I have less mileage in my arm. Or they can say I'm not used to it, not ready to throw that much, in, that many innings. But I mean, I, I like to think that my arms are well rested and ready to go. I mean, I finished this year 140 innings, like you said, and I felt strong still. I could have kept going after only throwing 92 the year before in college. So I'm definitely, definitely feel more fresh. I'd say. I don't know if it's I feel more fresh than anyone else, but I definitely think that there might have been kind of an advantage. Mm-hmm. And is there anybody, you know, you kind of grew up watching, you know, a New England guy, maybe some of the Sox or, you know, somebody you grew up watching on TV, anybody you kind of model your game after in terms of, you know, how you attack hitters or the stuff you've tried to work on throughout your career, any kind of major leaguer um, people may have heard of or, you know, seen on TV that you've kind of modeled your game after a little bit? Um, I never really try to copy anybody or, like anybody, but when growing up, I always watched uh, as a Sox fan, so I would watch Pedro pitch. I was like watching him, real intense guy, like always really getting after it, using his fastball and you know, use his change up well. And once I got older, um, Lester started to pitch for the Sox, and I always liked watching him because he was a similar 
similar type pitcher to me, lefty, big guy, and um, he always went out in battle, so I like to watch those two. Yeah, no, a lot of New England kids, I'm sure, would have, are nodding their heads listening to this right now. All right, we'll kind of send you out on this one. We're trying to end our interviews with players now on kind of a fun quiz note. Um, so now you're a part of the uh, Braves organization. Uh, you know, we, we I wanted to come up with a couple Braves trivia questions that you might know the answer to. Um, so we'll give you three, and see, this this could be either your time to shine or a very educational moment about your new organization. <laughs> So you can look at it either way. Um, and reminder, you know, this is baseball, so one out of three ain't bad. Um, we'll kind of get harder as it goes along. So we'll end on these three notes. Um, as you may know, you're, you're a New England guy, a, you know, Massachusetts guy growing up. Uh, the Braves used to be in Boston. They used to make their home in Boston. They moved from Boston to a second city. That second city was not Atlanta. What was that second city? Oh man, I have no idea. <laughs> I can make a guess. I, I mean, I gotta guess. I gotta put something out there. Um, Cincinnati. That's my only guess. I okay. yeah, it was Milwaukee. Milwaukee Braves. Yeah, Milwaukee <laughs> I have no Braves. idea. Yeah, that's where uh, Hank Aaron played a lot of his games. That's all right. Like I said, okay. this is an educational moment. Yeah, now, learning. Yeah, now you'll know if uh, when you're talking to, to Braves fans in the future. Um, so I'll, I'll give you this shot too. I don't know how. Dig or how much digging you do into baseball history, um, but Braves have a lot of really good arms, obviously in their history. Uh, who among Braves pitchers is the wins leader, all-time wins leader? I'll give you a hint. You have to go a little farther back than you're probably thinking. Yeah, probably thinking of the big three back in the nineties and yeah, my time. A little farther back. Um, I don't really know. I don't have it. And the only Braves I know when I think is Maddox, Clavin, Smalls. <laughs> I don't really. I don't even have a guess. Okay, it was uh, Warren Spawn. Warren Spawn won 356 games with the Braves, and we I may never, that. ever see another Brave win that many games. But you know, maybe you'll be the guy to break it. Now, now you know what you're aiming for, I guess. <laughs> All right, we'll let, we'll end on this one. Uh, your chance to go one for three. You know, make a good 333 average for you. Um, this is another Boston-related question. Um, when the the Braves played in Boston, they played at what was called Braves Field. Braves Field currently sits on a Boston campus. What campus is that? And I'll give you a hint, and this might help you. I don't know how well you know the Boston area colleges. It's on Commonwealth Avenue. Is it at Northeastern? Oh, oh that's that's close. It's Boston University, which, uh, okay. which is my alma mater. That's why, I, just, <laughs> that's why right. I know that question. That's okay, though. So now you know. This has been an educational experience for you, Sean. Now Definitely. You, now you can uh, drop this knowledge on uh, your fellow Braves prospects this spring when you, when you meet them for the first time. Hello. That was uh, Sean Newcomb, new top prospect in the Braves system following last week's trade with the Angels. Uh, thank you, Sean, for joining us, and enjoy the rest of your offseason. All right. Thank you. Been a long time since we got a chance to talk with Ben Hill, or two weeks, but it feels like an eternity. Ben, how's vacation? How are you? Welcome. Welcome back. 
Thank you. It's good to be back. I was, but it was even better to be away. <laughs> uh, how was it? Where take us through the the Ben John? You don't have to give us all the details because the best part about vacation is not having to tell everybody about it when you get back. But we're not going to let you off the hook that easily. Oh no, I'll tell you every detail, and that's going to be the next okay. fifty five yeah. minutes of this podcast. <laughs> the entire podcast today will just be your vacation. Yeah, but no, uh, you know I'm an American traveler at work and at play, and I went to San Francisco and New Orleans have some good friends who live in San Francisco, and a cousin was getting married in New Orleans, so I uh, tied it all into one big jaunt. New York to San Francisco to New Orleans, back to New York, and uh, now I'm back on the job like like it was all a dream. That is a long haul. That's New York to San Francisco in itself is a long trip. It is across the country. <laughs> I don't know why I pointed that out like it was uh, big breaking news to everybody. All right, let's dive in. Um, we, When we were getting toward the end of the season, you said you kind of had a read on uh, there would be a handful of rebrands or a handful of redesigns, refreshes for teams uh, coming into the 2016 campaign. But there have been a lot, really just over the last few weeks, there have been a ton. And I want to start off with one that is uh, kind of the end of an era for a very long time. The Kane County Cougars had arguably the worst look in minor league baseball, and that's not the case anymore. Kane County has come into the 21st century. They moved out of the the last era. I don't know what era you could call that with Kane County, but it was kind of a an interesting look, shall we say, with a brand new, fresh start. It's I'm surprised. I did not know that we would ever see this from the Kane County Cougars. Yeah, the Kane County Cougars. Um, you say it's the worst logo. I kind of liked it just because it was so out of step with everything, with the 21st century minor league aesthetic, but also it didn't really seem to slot in with a outdated aesthetic. It just looked like something that wasn't really quite a baseball logo. The way I always described it, really. Yeah, it yeah was exactly. You described it as uh, it looked kind of most like a Boy Scout merit badge. I described it, I always used to describe it as it looked like the logo of like a local parks and recreation department. Right, and that is uh, you know somewhat intentional because the Kane County Cougars play their stadium is on a forest preserve, and so they do want to tie that in. And moving on to the new logo, uh, we no longer have that merit badge looking logo, um, and the Cougar in the old logo had a very blank expression. But the new logo does incorporate that kind of a badge look to the primary logo, kind of like it could be on a Forest Rangers uniform. So they're still trying to tie it into the woodland theme. But the new Kane County Cougars are fierce and menacing. The Cougars, uh, you know, cartoonish, but brandishing a bat and very much in line with what we think of when we think of, you know, 21st century minor league baseball logos. It just kind of hit me now looking at it for the first time, the way their caps are going to kind of work with the Cougar. He's got a bat in his hand because that's such a thing now in the minors. But the C on the hats is kind of following, I guess, what the swing pattern would be. But what are your thoughts on it being C for Cougars rather opposed to KC for Kane County? Well, I talked to uh, Curtis Hogg, the GM of the Cougars, and um, he said, well, you know, the Kansas City Royals are out there. You know, Kane County is in Geneva, Illinois, not too close to Kansas City. Mm -hmm. But I still think he had the idea that, you know, KC, if you see a KC hat anywhere but Kane County, and maybe within Kane County, (laughs) people would think Kansas City. So they just wanted to go with the C. I would submit that the C looks quite a bit like the Columbus Clippers C. Right. I was thinking the same thing. But that's probably something that there'll be less confusion with that. I don't think there's going to be too many fans in uh, Kane County saying our our caps look like the Columbus Clippers. And how's that for some alliteration? That was pretty good. King County used to wear a uh, a differently colored Royals hat as an alternate when they were a Royals affiliate, correct? 
They did. They did. That was their Sunday alternate hat, I believe, at one time. So that's kind of a cool tie-in that they no longer have now being a Diamondbacks affiliate. Let's uh, talk about a team that I in no way even realized had a rebrand on the horizon. The Bowling Green Hot Rods, I feel like it feels like are a brand new team. They're already on to their second identity. They've got a whole new look. Yeah, he's there. Oh, you're still there? Yeah, you got oh, me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I totally thought you cut off in mid-sentence. Oh, no. Just uh, they've got a, an entirely new. I mean, it's a fresh look, a fresh color scheme. It's and this is not an old franchise at all. No, the Bowling Green Hot Rods played their first season in 2009. So heading into the 2016 season, you're not thinking uh, rebrand, but they have done a rebrand. The old one was designed by uh, Brandios. Uh, back in those days, they were known as Plan B. The new one is by SME, a firm that I I don't really know too much about, but Bowling Green is now owned by the same ownership group that owns the Reno Aces, and I know Reno has worked with SME, so they keep it in the family. But uh, the quote that we had from the Hot Rods general manager, Adam Noose, you know, he said that the old logo, we liked it, and obviously it wasn't that old, but he said that um, you know the new logo you know, a circular orange logo. It's just more streamlined and simple. And that the the old logo was kind of hard graphically to center, you know, on caps and merchandise and signage. Uh, so it was a little off kilter. And this new one, I guess, just simplifies and streamlines and, uh, you know, very much ties in with the racing theme of the Hot Rods since they are in the hometown of uh, Corvette. Yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of what the 66ers did in Inland Empire a little while ago. At least, I mean, it's got the tools in there. This doesn't have... You know, 66ers kind of fits into – I think it's Brandios that does that with everybody swinging a bat, some, uh, w- whether it's a person or an animal or whatever. This doesn't have that. It's very uh, – at least it's, you know, baseball-themed. It's got a flaming baseball, that kind of stuff, but at least ties back into the hot rod. Um, I don't know. Do, do, does this do a better job of working in the team name than what the previous logo did? I think they both do a pretty good job. I, I think it really is probably a question of what I was saying earlier of just um, – the team was having issues with maybe the way that the the old marks you know were centered or uh, displayed on the uniforms and merchandise where they were kind of a little off kilter because the the other car was kind of like coming at you in the old hot rods logo kind of bugging out a little bit and um, I think that was a little tough to say like so what should our eyes be focusing on what is the center of this logo and uh, so the new one it's uh, keep it keep it clean keep it a clean simple uh, fast running machine. One of the longest uh, tenured relationships in minor league baseball has been between the city of Omaha and the Kansas City Royals, and that will continue. Just sign an extended uh, player development contract for the next few seasons, did the Royals and the Omaha Storm Chasers. But Storm Chasers have kind of gone through a refresh as well. They've eliminated the black road cap. They've gone to a royal blue road cap uh, to kind of match their parent club, and they've got some powder blue alternates. But they've also got uh, something called the Vortex alternate. And, uh, Ben, what is going on with that? Yeah, well, Vortex, you know, they're the storm chasers, so uh, the Vortex is some kind of storm-chasing uh, terminology that I don't know exactly. Is that the center of the storm, the Vortex? I always think right. it as, like, the twister. The twister, like, the twister yeah. twister is the way yeah. it spins is the Vortex. Yeah, so these Vortex jerseys, they are, uh, it is like you're caught in the middle of a uh, devastating twister with... Um, these really kind of insane tie-dye looking things with these blue jagged stripes coming in towards the center where you then have the logo. And I think the Storm Chasers uh, logo removed from everything else, that alternate logo that's just the O with the kind of thunderbolt through it, 
it kind of looks to me like a gender symbol, I've always thought. That's what I thought when yeah. I first looked at this. It, it reminds me of something that should have been worn in, like, Austin Powers. And I don't mean that as a knock, but it just <laughs> seems like somebody in the background of one of those dance scenes would just be wearing this uniform. And maybe that's kind of what they were going for. I don't know. Yeah, it is It is a trip. It wouldn't, no matter how you want to say it, it's a trip. It ties into the meteorolo- meteorological theme. But uh, it is definitely unique. You know, it'll definitely uh, attract some attention when they wear it out there on the field. And it's one of those... You know, I try to use the powers of my vocabulary to describe these things, but, you know, just check it out. Omaha Storm Chasers, Vortex logo, and then you can see what we all see. All right, and one of the final things uh, that we've seen at least this month is something that's kind of come out of left field, I think, for a lot of us because you don't see it very often. But We've had multiple leagues uh, come out with redesigns this year. The Appalachian League is one of the most recent ones. The Southern League obviously did the same thing. And the Texas League just today, again, we're recording this uh, today on Thursday, Texas League came out with a new logo as well. That kind of caught a lot of people by surprise. Have you seen, do you remember, Ben, any time when leagues have come out with, especially multiple in the same offseason, have come out with new identities? No, absolutely, I can't. And uh, I think I just kind of took league logos for granted for the last... Yeah, you just assume that like yeah. that's how they look. Yeah, it's just like that's how it looked, exactly. And it never really occurred to me, when's this league going to rebrand? It was just sort of... Uh, it just was what it was. It was rooted in the fabric of things. So first we had the Southern League, then the Appy League, and now today the Texas League. So it does prove leagues have logos, which we all knew but never thought about. And those logos, just like everything else in minor league baseball, is subject to change. Uh, the Texas League logo is real simple. You know, a guy swinging a bat, side profile, almost a little bit uh, reminiscent, you know, of the main MLB logo, but with the Lone Star State and red and white Texas colors, and uh, keeping it pretty simple for a league established in 1888. But for a league which does have teams outside of Texas, even though the uniform or the logo only implies uh, Texas. But when you're called the Texas League, why not have a Texas logo? Yeah, you got to play into that somehow, I guess. It just it, it reeks so much of the Texas flag that you got to think like Springfield, uh, Tulsa, Northwest Arkansas, and Arkansas are just kind of looking at, you know, maybe just struggling. But, I mean, nobody's selling Texas League merchandise that I know of. That's not really a thing, right? No, no. League merchandise is uh, pretty much non-existent. So this is just a way for the leagues to brand themselves, often internally, you know, on the league websites, uh, certainly through, you know, All-Star Game and that kind of things. But it's not the kind of thing that comes into play on a daily day, day-to-day basis um, where people are really putting a lot of eyeballs on uh, on league logos two of those rebrands the appy league and the southern league were both done by uh, a guy who is now a twitter friend of all of us todd radom so we're gonna have to have todd on the podcast at some point over the soft season to discuss how this came about to not only get to do at least one but two rebrands maybe more we don't know what's coming up the rest of the soft season but yeah it's just a rare thing like you just kind of figured well that's how those leagues look and not the case over the soft season yeah definitely not things keep changing and uh you know, logo Vember, as it was hashtagged on Twitter yesterday, is going to keep on rolling. Um, I know there's going to be a pretty significant rebrand on this coming Monday and probably one the week after that and uh, a few other odds and ends, if not more, over the next uh, coming weeks and months. Just in time for Christmas. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yep, got to get it out before the Christmas season starts. And uh, who knows? I think the Pacific Coast League is, is due for one if we're talking about leagues because theirs just says A baseball, which I've always found very strange. Like, we know it's AAA baseball. Don't you want to talk up the fact that you're on the Pacific Coast, even though you have teams in Tennessee? I don't know. Why yeah, not? so maybe you don't, considering you have a team in Nashville. <laughs> 
<laughs> he is Benjamin Hill. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at Ben's Biz and check out the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. Uh, ben, what I know it's, uh, I mean, obviously you got the the road trip stuff pretty well wrapped up. So what does the, the off season look like for you toward the 2016 new year, which is coming up? Yeah, well, just back in the groove this week. And uh, right now I'm writing up an article in which I'm uh, handing out my annual Busy Awards, B-I-Z-Z-I-E. I just make up categories and hand out awards just to kind of highlight some of the unique stuff I saw on the road. Um, of course, I'll be covering Logo Vember, and the winter meetings are coming up. And uh, odds and ends and features and facts and blog posts per usual. And uh, it's funny how things roll. Finally finished writing all my on-the-road stuff, then go on vacation, then come back, then Thanksgiving, then winter meetings, then holidays, and all of a sudden it's 2016, and we're already looking forward to the next season. It's going to be opening day in like 15 minutes. It's scary. I, I don't want it to be. I love baseball, but I'm kind of like off. I just wish I could kind of hit pause on the off season sometimes and really figure out my life. Ben, before we get you out of here, one other thing I wanted to cover. Um, the Syracuse Chiefs, who were known for a time as the Syracuse Sky Chiefs, they have had a, a history, a long-time history, one of those real old guard teams in the International League. They unveiled a new look this week, and one of the interesting things about that was Syracuse brought back um, an Indian head logo. Now, it's not kind of the standard, um, you know, long caricature, long-time baseball-style logo. It's a very um, stylized, I guess, almost abstract, sort of look but uh syracuse with a a refreshed updated look a couple of different um word letter logos uh with a stylized s script and interlocking sc but the indian head thing is really interesting to me especially because of the way that teams have shied away from that rebranded away from that or chosen to go in the route like the spokane indians have done and really really embrace their local native american community what has the reaction been to the syracuse decision well just was yesterday and uh, saw some chatter on you know on the internet, but really there hasn't been much of a reaction to it at all. Uh, I think that's because, as you said, this is a not a caricature, not a, a really offensive, cartoonish racial stereotype as much as a kind of abstracted side profile. Um, it's an alternate cap, which uh, GM Jason Smorrell told me they're not even going to be wearing in games. I don't know if they'll wear it if the players will wear it at any point or if it'll just strictly be something for sale on the team store. Um, it was previously the primary logo, you know, in another era, in another less sensitive era in the seventies and eighties. And the whole Chiefs the Chiefs whole set of new logos is kind of referencing the past with that stylized S logo from the sixties, um, with the red, white and blue color scheme that goes back to the thirties. So I think they just wanted to create a larger package referencing the course of their team history and imagery. Um, all that said, yes, there's just such a move in the other direction that it kind of seemed, you know, to me and probably a lot of people like why bother with that? Why add a native American logo that you didn't have previously or weren't using previously you know what are the uh, positives and negatives of that decision um but i think there's it's subtle enough all the way around that i don't think it's going to be you know to turn into anything you know along the lines of even remotely what we've seen you know in other markets and with other teams benjamin hill he's on twitter at ben's biz give him a follow there and uh ben we'll talk to you after the next couple of big rebrands all right sounds good
Big thanks to Sean Newcomb and a big thanks to Benjamin Hill for joining us on episode number 31 of the show before the show. You can follow Sean Newcomb on Twitter as well. He is at Sean, S-E-A-N, Nuke, N-E-W-K, so you can go give him a follow. And uh, Sean Newcomb's not going to have anything to worry about coming up this week with the Rule 5 draft on the horizon, but we do have a big deadline coming up for the Rule 5 draft, and by the time you hear this, that deadline may have passed, but Sam, uh, 40-man roster decisions are coming, and as we're recording this, on Thursday, already fast and furious. We got a lot of moves coming from major league teams who are clearing space on 40 man rosters, getting set to protect their guys on 40 man rosters. But take us through the basics of the Rule 5 draft. If you're on the 40 man, you're protected from it. If not, there is a chance that you could change teams. Walk us through it. Yeah, so it. it- Sounds that simple. It's it's a little more complicated. Than it's certainly not. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> I'm going to try to make it as quick as I can. But there's a lot more intricacies in it, and we'll have a, our own story both leading into the Rule Five, after the Rule Five, and then tomorrow on Friday when you hear this podcast, we'll already have something up about who's being protected and what that means, and who's not being protected and what that means. But basic the basics of it: if you were signed at age 18 or younger. You have to be on a 40-man roster within five seasons of signing. Otherwise, you are not prote- You are therefore not protected in the Rule 5 draft. If you were signed when you were 19 or older, you have to be uh, on the 40-man within four seasons. And the way that the, the reason teams protect players in that way, put them on the 40-man roster, is because if you're not on the 40-man roster in the Rule 5, other organizations can draft you. And then if you're not – this, with the idea that you would be on that team's 25-man roster, their major league roster, and the second they're taken off that 25-man roster, they have to be returned to their original club. So it's always – if a t- team picks a player in the Rule 5, it's always a threat that they're going to have to send them back. Um, so sometimes teams kind of stretch the rules of it. Guys are sent on rehab assignments. They're – considered injured they're you know whatever what have you once the season is over if a, if a player has stayed the entire season on the 25 man roster therefore you know they're cleared uh they they're officially a part of that organization for the rest of their contract of their major league contract um we saw a couple guys like, like that last year notably Delino de Shields uh with the Rangers, you know, took over, helped them to the playoffs. He was a Rule 5 guy. He got taken from the Astros system. So tomorrow on Friday, that's the deadline to put guys on the 40-man to protect them. So we're going to see a lot of movement. We've already seen a little bit of it today on Thursday. Um, The Astros made a trade sending Jonathan Villar to Milwaukee. That cleared a 40-man spot. They're going to have a lot of guys that they could potentially add. Um, So it'll be a hectic Friday in terms of transactions. Um, So I encourage people to come to our site. We'll have a breakdown of everybody, what it means, who was protected, who wasn't protected. Also go to MLB transactions. You can see how much movement there is going to be tomorrow. It is going to be kind of fast and furious. There is a story up on MLB.com right now of the top prospects who are not currently protected. And again, they could be protected by the time the deadline falls. But there are 11 top 100 prospects who are listed right now as being unprotected. Sam, who are some of the guys who stand out most to you? Obviously, the guy who is probably at the top of that list is Tyler Glass now. He's the highest ranked of all those guys. And there's no doubt in anybody's mind the Pirates are going to protect him. But uh, there are some guys who are kind of in the back end of this group that you want what exactly the road is going to be ahead for them yeah the one that kind of sticks out that's a big question mark for me he's a top 100 guy he's been a top 100 guy for a while is Kyle Zimmer with the Royals 
uh, you know, just talking about a guy who's had injury problems for a couple of years now. Uh, and, you know, it would make sense for the Royals to protect him just because he is such a talent. Everybody talks about his stuff is, is electric when he is healthy. But at the same time, you know, maybe other team, they think other teams will be scared away. I mean, it, it, it could become a game of chicken in which they think other teams are going to worry about his injury history and therefore not really want to touch him. Um, and, you know, they may leave him unprotected. That's a guy who kind of stands out. Uh, Brandon Nimmo, you know, friend of the podcast, was on here a couple weeks ago. He's another guy at the back end. Um, I, I'm, cer- I'm certain that the, the Mets are going to protect him. But uh, the Mets have kind of a flooded outfield themselves right now with Conforto, Juan Lagares, Curtis Granderson, a couple other guys that are kind of floating around there. You know, they lost to Spedis, um, but Nimmo will probably be protected. Blake Snell's another guy, you know, friend of the pod who's done this. Michael Fulmer, uh, you know, newly of the Tigers organization, they're going to want to make sure they keep him. And um, one other guy just kind of stands out is Manuel Margot, and that, you know, the Red Sox sent him to the Padres, and now the Padres. Excuse me. The Padres have to protect him um, on the 40-man, and I'm sure they're going to do that. He'll be kind of on a faster track with the Padres than I imagine he would have been with the Red Sox anyways. Already a little bit of news uh, as it pertains to these lists. The Atlanta Braves just announced that outfielder Malik Smith and right-handed pitcher John Gant have both been added to their 40-man roster. Smith is the number 15 prospect in the organization, Gant number 25. So that news will start coming out uh, fast and furious over the next 24 hours or so as teams protect their top prospects from the Rule 5 trap. But, yeah, this is always a fun time of year because it's it's kind of hectic. I remember last year talking with uh, Dan Winkler, who was formerly in the Colorado Rockies organization, and even asking him, this was uh, just just a couple weeks before the Rule 5 draft, said, do you think there's any chance not being a 40-man guy, somebody will take you? And uh, Dan was coming off of Tommy John surgery last June, said, I don't think anybody will take me and pay me major league money to sit around on the disabled list. And sure enough, the Atlanta Braves exactly came calling. Exactly. Paid him to stick around on the disabled list uh, throughout his entire rehab process. He did not even make a rehab appearance in the minor leagues. His first action in live game action in 2015 was in the majors a year after having Tommy John surgery and not having pitched above double A. So it happens. Some of this crazy stuff happens. Yeah, it, I mean, that's a good gig if you can get it. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Daniel Winkler was <laughs> off the charts with, when he found out about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, uh, the way Rule 5 kind of works is that what you'll see is just not necessarily, you know, big prospects who are going to be sitting there, but, um, you know, just nice little pieces. You know, I know the, the D-backs picked up uh, Hernandez as a catcher. Uh, last year, you know, just with the idea of he he has a wicked arm and he could be a great backup catcher. And he was a guy who was injured uh, for most of the year, but they got him some major league time just to establish that. Now he's fully part of the organization. So you know, you're talking about power arms, power bats who can come off the bench, or backup catchers. I mean, that's usually what gets taken in the Rule Five. So if one of your favorite, you know, power arms, big bullpen guys is not protected. You, I would get a little worried if I, you know, your favorite really minor league reliever, if you have one, doesn't get protected, then I would get a little worried. Again, teams have to declare which players will be on the 40-man roster by 11.59 p.m. Eastern time Friday night. So that is Friday the 20th. So keep an eye on your team and uh, whether or not your favorite prospect has been added to that list. And if not, you're going to have a hectic day waiting around in December in the winter meetings when uh, the Rule of Five draft is underway because it's uh, yeah, it's a little bit stressful for, for those guys who uh, are off the, uh, off the 40-man roster and out there in the pool to possibly be selected. So um, keep an eye on that. We'll be talking about 
about it more, obviously, as the Rule 5 draft comes closer. And then on into December, we'll give you our thoughts when that does, in fact, go down for 2015. We're going to wrap things up next. The 34th edition of Minor League Baseball is the show before the show podcast coming to a close. It's uh, it's like almost a holiday week. We're putting uh, we're putting away the 34th edition of the show before the show podcast. Sam, what are you doing for Thanksgiving next week? I am going home. Actually, I, I I'm very excited to go home. Um, I'm going to I go home to to Western Massachusetts, and then uh, my family always goes down to Connecticut for uh, Thanksgiving. We go to my mom's hometown in Manchester, Connecticut, where they have a Turkey Day race. That's kind of our. That's uh, fun. Yeah, it's tradition, and it's going to be especially fun this year. Because my mom has been doing this race for a very long time now, and um, since she was in high school in Manchester, and it's the second biggest race in New England in terms of participation. You get thirteen thousand people doing this morning of Thanksgiving, second biggest race behind the Boston Marathon. Wow! Yeah, and so back when my mom started, and I hate this part of our history, but it exists. Uh, they didn't let women run because interesting. Yeah, the seventies were a weird yeah. time, and. So they didn't let women run. So my mom used to run with a shirt that said equal rights for equal runners. Oh, that is and awesome. They used to stop them right at the, the finish line. So this year, last year, actually, we, we did it. And I was looking up on the website, looking for our results. And they had a, I think it's called perennial performers or something like that. They have a program where they want to honor people who have been doing the race for a long time. The cutoff is if you're a man who's been running it for 50 years, because men have had the opportunity to run it for 50 years. Uh, you're able to enter the program. If you're a woman who's been doing it for 40 years, you get to enter the program. And I, I looked at my mom and it started, you know, counting on my fingers and toes. And I'm like, mom, ne- next year you could do this. And she's like, oh, I don't know if I want to. So I kind of signed her up for it. And like I said, there's 13,000 people. So this year she gets her own special number. That is awesome. Yeah. So this year my mom is 75. Man. <laughs> And she's going to be 75. running. She's not age 75. I'm not. She'll be number 75, not age 75. Not, not age 75. <laughs> she's number 75. My number is 12,000 something. Just to give you an idea of how cool this will be for me. That is um, amazing. So, yeah, if anybody goes to the Manchester Road Race this year, look for number 75. It's Cindy Dykstra. It's my mom. Uh, cheer her on. Her, she'll have her name on it anyway, so maybe you'll be able to recognize that. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. What are you doing this year, Tyler? Uh, I'm going to eat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing gonna, that too. You're going to be I'm all gonna, active. I want to make that clear. Like, I'm definitely doing that too. You guys are going to be all active in, you know, fun family activities. I'm going to watch football and eat and be a fat tub of goo. It's going to be my entire plan on Thanksgiving. It's basically all I do. Um, yeah, no, I'm actually, I'm coming out there. I do Thanksgiving in New York City basically every year. Um, and so I am uh, coming out there this weekend. Um, I go see my niece. And uh, I brought her back a bunch of presents from Taiwan. So that'll be cool. Ooh, got her. What, she can't download podcasts yet. She's only a year and a half old. So I got yeah, What do you get a year and a half old yeah, in Taiwan? So there is a, uh, there's a building in Taipei called the Taipei 101 Tower, which is one of the tallest buildings in the world. I don't know where it ranks as far as, you know, the listings of whoever, whatever is tallest. I think at one time it was the tallest building in Asia. Maybe it's still the tallest building in Asia. No, according to Wikipedia, which, you know, it's wrong because it's on Wikipedia. It was the world's tallest building in 2004 and was the world's tallest building until the Burj Khalifa opened in Dubai in 2010. So now you know. Um, there but, you go. So there is this big counterweight. They get a lot of earthquakes there, right? Yeah, there's this big counterweight in that building, which is just this giant ball that's like dangling from these massive cables. And it's in the middle of the building. And when there are earthquakes, that ball 
shakes around and it basically keeps the building from falling over. And uh, but they've made like a little mascot out of that. So they sell these little goofy stuffed animals and stuffed mascots, whatever they are. So I got her one of those, um, which is adorable, and it's black and yellow stripes, which I thought was cute because she was a bumblebee for Halloween. Also, and then on top of that. Uh, we did broadcast last week at Taoyuan Stadium, uh, just south of Taipei City, which is the home to the Lamigo Monkeys in the Chinese Professional Baseball League. And they actually opened their team store basically for me and one other broadcaster. So I got her. They sell these little monkey hats and yeah. so got her a monkey hat, too. So uh, wow. I got so I'm playing the good, cool uncle role. I don't have I any kids. Say, you, you've certainly earned just tons and uncle. tons of uncle points. Right? I know. And then I got to get her Christmas stuff, too. I should <laughs> probably just hold these back for Christmas. But I'm that's what I was thinking. I, I, nobody will tell her. Yeah, that's true. She won't know. What am I, I going to give them to her for next week for? What am I thinking? I'll just yeah. it for Christmas. Whatever. That'll be way more fun. But, yeah, so I'm coming out there, and uh, I'll get to go hang out with her up in Westchester County, and that'll be, uh, that'll be a ton of fun. Um, we are not uh, – we're not going to bother you with, uh, with our voices next week. You can enjoy Thanksgiving by listening to all the greatest hits of the show before the show. You can go back through all 34 episodes and tune into those. Or you might just be listening to this one, in which case we want to wish you and your family a very happy Thanksgiving wherever you're tuned into the show before the the show and thanks for making our first season uh, a whole pile of fun we're gonna have more obviously after thanksgiving week more into december and uh, the rule five draft and all that stuff that'll be coming up and then uh yeah into january and beyond as we get ready for pitchers and catchers reporting which is less than like three months away which is amazing already yeah and just just kind of in closing just in case anybody is listening to this on their way homes for thanksgiving and all that uh, we are thankful for you listening and yes uh, we are that's what we will think over our giant mounds of turkey and cranberry sauce and stuffing and gravy and such. We're going to do an entire podcast on our favorite Thanksgiving uh, food stuffs, but but that'll we'll, just be for us. That'll yeah, be it'll just the, uh, we'll, that'll be on the director's cut. Yeah, that'll so. just be the private podcast that we hold <laughs> after this one every week. That'll be fun. We'll do that one. So until episode number 35, coming up uh, first week in December. Again, thanks for tuning in uh, to the show before the show. You can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. If you have not already, you can head there and give us a rating and a review and a subscription, and that helps us out a ton. Uh, you can get in touch with us. Sam is at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B. I am at Tyler Mon. Minor League Baseball is at M-I-L-B. Benjamin Hill is at Ben's Biz. And uh, until the week after next week, enjoy Thanksgiving. All the best to you and yours. Thanks a lot for, uh, for all your support for us this year. And uh, we'll talk to you in December.